When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm super excited to be speaking to Al Troutman, all about safe fieldwork while being Black, and uh, kind of as part of our ongoing effort to talk more directly about how fieldwork and potentially entering the conservation field or conservation dog field um, is going to be different for people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, sexual orientations. So... Al Troutman, Alex Troutman, if you haven't heard of him yet, is a fish and wildlife biologist and environmental educator with a passion for sharing and immersing the younger generation into nature. He has a bachelor's of biology and a master's degree with a focus in conservation biology and wetland sciences from Georgia Southern University. Knowing how it feels to not see anybody who looks like you in your dream career, Alex made it a point to, to be representation for the younger generation. Alex strives to make sure that nature is accessible to all, and that, and that includes not only having access to areas, but ensuring that access is equitable, where all can not only work in and visit nature, but have the same relaxing uh, nature to visit, areas to forage, fish, and hunt in, and areas that provide recreation and relaxation. Um, and I love that goal so much. It's something we uh, we think about a lot here is, you know, getting outside and we say being a canine conservationist and however suits your passions and skill set, like having that privilege. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me so much. Yeah, we're, uh, it's been a, like, a, like a lot of the interviews this summer and into the fall, we've had a lot of um, <laughs> uh, scheduling uh, conflicts going back and forth. So I'm really excited we're squeezing this in. So I, uh, I basically went through your paper that we'll link to in the show notes that is all about safety and inclusion for field work. And I just have a bunch of questions that your paper basically answers, but then this way people can get it while they're driving or running with their dogs or whatever. So why don't we start out with where that paper starts, which is kind of a definition of field work, because I think sometimes we have maybe a very specific image in our head that could be broadened. Yeah. So field work um, it's everything you think it is and um, some of the things you think that it's not. So a lot of people, when they think of field work, they think of uh, people going outside, um, trudging through rainforest, the jungle, um, collecting data. Why that in itself is field work, it's also um, so much more than that. You don't necessarily have to be in a jungle, in a rainforest, a desert. Um, you can be going through a neighborhood, talking to people, uh, and that's considered field work. So field work um, is the process of observing and collecting data about people, cultures, and the natural environment. And that's what field work is. So if you're mm -hmm. doing, going through with pamphlets or doing questionnaires in your neighborhood, that is considered field work. It doesn't always, it doesn't always have to be you getting bit by mosquitoes, uh, sinking in mud, um, getting covered with ticks, um, being in tall grasses. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it doesn't always involve like um, knee-high boots and machetes. Uh, all right. So I think then one of the other big places that your paper started out with is talking about the issue of representation. And I don't think, I don't think anyone, um, at least from our North American audiences, are going to be surprised that we're going to go ahead and say that conservation biology is pretty skewed in its representation of the population. So. Why is that, you know, what do we see as far as representation um, in conservation biology? Yeah, so the conservation field, it's, um, I'll give a metaphor. Um, mm -hmm. I, I like to do food metaphors. Um, I like to say it's a, um, it's 
a bowl of grits with a few um, specks of pepper in it. Um, so it's heavily uh, white. It's not really diversified. While there are um, some people of color in a conservation field, um, it's not truly a representation of what um, the United States look like. Um, it's um, black individuals in the conservation field make up um, like less than um, 4% of wow. the workforce in the conservation field, uh, which is uh, totally different from what we make up um, in the general population. So it's definitely a huge lack of diversity and a need for um, efforts to help to fill in that um, gap of representation of black and other people of color and indigenous individuals as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and it looks like I just did a quick Google because I wasn't quite sure what the numbers were, but, you know, black people make up about 12% of the population in the U.S. and only 4% of our field biologists. So definitely massively underrepresented. I know this is, you know, and I, I know parts of this are kind of systemic pipeline issues where black kids are getting closed out of natural spaces due to redlining and all sorts of things. And then there's educational barriers. And then I know one of the things that we think about a lot in um, here at Canine Conservationists is trying to figure out how to talk about the finances of conservation and the reality that this is not a field that is going to help um, any anyone build any generational wealth generally. Um, and that is a really valid reason to potentially stay away, especially if you've, you know, you've experienced generational um, wage theft, I guess would be one way to put it. Yes, yes. It's, this is, feels definitely um, a passion-driven feel is not mm -hmm. something um, that's going to break the bank, um, so to speak. And that is one of the huge barriers uh, when it comes to like getting into this field, but also getting the experience. So many times, mm -hmm. um, Black people and people of color and other individuals that are um, come from a lower economic status have to choose between doing um, field work and getting experiences that may um, pay a little bit or many times doesn't pay at all because it's, it's kind of mm -hmm. like a guilt trip of, oh, you get to work with these cool animals, let's say like dolphins or uh, some other charismatic animal. Um, so you, you get your, your pay is totally that experience um, yeah. that you're getting. Um, and it's highly competitive. So people are like, well, you should be lucky that you're getting an experience. But many times us as um, BIPOC individuals or people who also come from lower economic status, um, it's, that can be the between getting experience or we have to work a job um, to make money um, to pay for our schooling or to pay for um, some of the equipment we need especially if we're not getting grants or anything. And also it's not a lot of times it's not just us um, paying for like ourselves, but sometimes we have to help with bills back, mm -hmm. back home. So we don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, I'm going to take off three months and um, go get experience um, making little, or sometimes even having to pay for the experience yeah. um, to get, um, to get that experience, having to pay for it, um, and when we really have to or need to focus on paying bills, so it's, def that's, it's definitely a huge barrier um, where people may might be able to get in the field, or it can prolong it, and also it can just change the change their narrative, of not even want to go in this field because it's another gate that they have to pass through yeah. not only the gate of um being uh, one of few people of colors um in the field or um the only one sometimes but also now the other barrier of financial like financially having to give up pay or throw extra money that you don't have to get the experience just to work with a species um, that you, that you care about, that you want to see, um, to see, um, it's definitely a a huge problem that's in the conservation and field. 
uh, with yeah. gatekeeping. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like it, it just hits in so many different ways. And I, you know, none of us like being underpaid, but yeah, if you don't have parents who can help out or you are actively needing to help out your family and then you know, and then that has a cumulative effect because then years down the line, when you're submitting your resume, you know, they're going to say, why did you spend these summers bossing tables or, you know, working as, I don't know, I had a good friend uh, in college who worked as like a garbage man for a couple summers because it was really good money. Um, and then, you know, it was really hard for them to figure out how to spin that to make themselves competitive against all these people who had done all of these unpaid internships. It's a really broken system. That's yeah. So I think the next place that the paper went is kind of defining safety um, and pointing out that safety might not necessarily be a universal truth for everyone that has the same definition at all times. And I, I really enjoyed that discussion. So can we dive into that a little bit and explore that? Yeah, yeah. So I guess to start, like, what is what exactly is safe so um maryland dictionary defines safe as being free from harm or risk unhurt um secure from any threat or danger and or harm or loss and then affording safety or security from danger risk or difficulty um and it's just mainly what i take it as is returning home to your office in the same state um that you left it in so coming back with all your fingers limbs um but also mentally as well um not enduring any um things that are unsafe mentally um gaslighting um mm -hmm. racism um any threats or harassment um all of those are considered safe so safety and being safe is both a mental and also a physical um, component and safe is is not a endpoint. It's not. Um, it's ever constant. It's ever changing. Um, kind of like on uh, water has many different phases. It can be. It can be a gas. It can be a solid. It can be a liquid. Um, safe um, can be many different um, ideas or constants. So for me, um, right now. It, uh, example I use in the paper is it was at one time safe for me to go conduct um, bird banning and go do nest checks um, during the season but I eventually I broke my ankle and while I did that task going checking that many times while my ankle wasn't broken now that my ankle is broken and I'm in a boot it's no longer safe for me to do that even though I have years of experience there's something right. that has yeah. changed where I can no longer do it safely. And um, it's kind of same along the same lines of um, I I know how to cook, um, but I wouldn't give the my little cousin who's like two, like tell him that, all right, go and make me uh, a, a pizza. Uh, I wouldn't expect him, that to be safe for him. Right. He doesn't know how to do that. Um, so what's safe for me is not always safe for other people, um, mm -hmm. even if they're um, come from a similar background, um, they might not have the same experience or um, they may not be able to, um, they don't have the training that I do. Um, so what's safe for one person is not always safe for um, everyone that even goes with um, equipment. Um, wearing mm -hmm. me wearing two X waiters and then giving them to somebody else um, who wears a small, um, that's not safe. Um, they're going to be swallowing yeah. those. It's going to restrict <laughs> yeah. their their movement. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, field gear is not universally uh, uh, tradable. Um, and yeah, I mean, knowing how to use your equipment, there's so much training, there's so much, you know. Uh, with the weather and the temperature and how different people will respond to that. And, um, 
yeah, their physical fitness. I I know the first time I ever got heat stroke, well, the first and only time I've ever gotten heat stroke at a job. Um, I was the only woman on a concert on a um a construction crew, and I was being told that I needed to keep up with like number of wheelbarrows per hour with everyone else because I wasn't going to get special treatment because I was a woman. Um, and ultimately that day I ended up getting heat exhaustion or heat stroke and, uh, needing to go to the hospital. Um, and you know, the same rate of work was not, uh, consistently safe for everyone on the crew. Um, and maybe they could have, I don't know. I don't, I was going to say maybe they could have considered that before we're hired. They hired me, but I guess then I'm advocating for them to not hire me because I'm a woman and that's not, uh, really a platform I want either. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, no, that makes good sense. So whose responsibility is safety in the field? You know, is this just a personal responsibility thing? I don't think so, right? Yeah, it's definitely not um, just a personal responsibility. It's the responsibility of me, but also um, the organization I'm going out for. Um, So if it's my university, my university is my employer. Uh, But also um, anyone who's going out with me or who may be in the field, uh, with me, um, it's the responsibility for everybody who's going on the field, but also the people who are sending us out. It's not just my responsibility to keep myself safe, um, but it's my responsibility to keep myself safe, the person who's going out with me. And I also um, expect the individuals or the people who hire me to keep me um, safe as well. And it's when you're out with a group of people or um, even another person, like one per one person's safety um, can't be prioritized um, over the other. Um, if you're feeling sick and um, you're not mm-hmm. letting the person you're working with know, um, because let's say you are suffering from heat exhaustion, you're, you're not saying anything, and um, you happen to be doing a, a two-man job where like you're holding something or um, you're carrying something together, and then um, that person passes out because they didn't um, tell you they're they're feeling um, right. sick or they wasn't drinking enough water. So now you're you're. Um, they pass out your drop, whatever you're carrying on top of yourself. Cause they, um, it fell behind you and like pulled you down. So now you're, maybe you're in the marsh and you're in the channel and you were carrying stuff. So now you're oh, no, yeah. mud and maybe on, um, just above the waterline. So, um, safety is definitely everybody's responsibility. Um, uh, especially everyone who's in the field, but also those people, um, who are sending you out um, when they're sending you out um, it's whatever response to make sure they're providing the proper gear they're providing um, emergency access they're pro- providing um, equipment that lets people know that they're the um, organization that is sending you um, sending you out I'm like it's not just your responsibility like um, it is your responsibility to make sure yourself is safe but it's also a uh, added um, weight on the individuals who are sending you out because um, let's say you you are keeping yourself safe but um, other things go awry like there's a severe thunderstorm that um, comes out of nowhere or they send you out in a um, university um, sponsored kayak and um, it, it has a hole in it Oh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so who's who's at fault there? I mean, obviously you should check it before, but uh, if it's university sponsored mm-hmm. and and like it, like you checked it and maybe there it was like it was fine when you went out, but it was something that um, unbeknownst to you, like a um, it was put together incorrectly, and something yeah. happens. Um, even though like you checked it, uh, it's still like unknown dangers um, that are unseen. So some of the stuff um, that you expect to be safe, you went through all your precautions, um, checking it, and externally it good, it looked good, but internally um, there's something wrong with it. Um, so that's why like it's not only your uh, job to make sure you're safe, but it's also the people who's responsible um, for sending you out and they um, need to make sure like um, that they know when you're coming back in or uh, how long you're supposed to be out and where you're going. Um, they can't just, I'm um, like, okay, we're paying you to send you out there, but we, we don't really care where 
where you're going or when you're going to come back because um, ultimately if something does happen people come looking for you um they go to your job or university sent you out and say okay where's alex where was he supposed to be um when the last time you heard from him and it was like i don't know like it's, it's yeah. just ridiculous yeah right well and so much of that comes back to you know like your kayak example if you haven't trained your staff or your field team or whoever how to do those inspections, then, you know, it, it still is you as the employer's responsibility to, you know, to either train them and make sure that they understand that that is part of their responsibility and that protocol. And, uh, or if you don't do that, like, then it's, your, then it's on you. Um, and I know, you know, there are some situations in which we, like when we were on the wind farm, for example, the wind farm that I worked on, um, it was there was probably 40 or 50 different landowners that each had like a lease for a turbine on their property um and if we weren't told ahead of time that oh hey the guy who owns turbines abc um he can be a little a little ornery if you don't close the gates 100 percent correctly 100 percent of the time and like he's really on that you know you could end up in a really unsafe situation with a landowner um, because, and you wouldn't have, there's no way that you could have had that information ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And obviously I'm not saying that we're leaving gates open anyway, but you know, some landowners are certainly more particular than others or have particular things that they're very concerned about. Right. Right. Yeah. That is definitely, um, one, one thing that could happen. And I guess that also goes back to another form of, um, safety is having situational awareness, um, and mm -hmm. knowing what um again what's safe for one person one group of people is not always safe um something similar to um that happened to me um last year um i went out with an individual who um um is not a person of color he went to his land many times before um but um for me going out there with him um like i want like acknowledgement like okay this land it's okay for me to go out there um, but we went out to this land and kind of just showed up and the gates were locked. Um, so we called around, um, finally found a, the, one of the landowner's um, son. And he's like, yeah, just if you find a gate that's open, um, go, just go ahead and go, go in. Um, so we went in into the, the, the gate. We finally found a gate that was open. We went in we stopped by uh, one of the houses uh, where the housekeeper was and was like, Hey, we're here to do this and this. And it's like, oh yeah, go in. And then um, while I was going in, like we were driving by, and like there was like people looking at us, and we didn't stop. And then once we went and saw the project site and it was coming back out, like a truck just literally like came in front of us and blocked our exit. Oh my and god! And was like was basically like crushing us who it was. And he like, once he got the car, he was like, oh, I see who you guys are now. He's like, saw our um, company badge, like on the on my uniform. Uh -huh. Thankfully I, I had that on. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was just kind of, um, it wasn't the best situation to be in um, because like I said, me, like I would have got confirmation to go that, um, go on that land before I got there. But the individuals yeah. I went was like, oh, I've been in slam many times before. Like, just just going. Like, no, like, that, that's not the case for everyone. And then for um, me, it was like, he didn't realize, like, the extent of, like, danger. Like, we could have been because the individual, like, mm -hmm. was impeding our, um, like, exit from the property. He was blocking us in. And he came out hostile until he recognized, like, what badge we had on. Um, and then, like, um, he was talking to us, but at that time, like, it was already high stress level. And, like, if yeah. this was just me by myself, a person of color on this land in, in South Alabama, like, would it be the same situation now that I'm confronted by um, not even the landowner, someone who just happened to be on the property? Yeah, yeah, who really, yeah, really appointed themselves there and really presumed the worst until, I mean, yeah, good thing you guys had the badges and the uniforms and good thing he recognized them and then was able to admit, you know, calm himself down uh, and kind of yeah. tacitly ad ad admit he was, <laughs> he was crying wolf. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, those, those sorts of things are so important. And it's, 
you know, it's really important for the, you know, everyone on the team to try to be aware of, you know, just because I've been here a bunch of times doesn't mean that, you know, they're automatically going to recognize my truck or that they're, you know, it's always going to be the same people here or just, you know, I've got someone new with me that's going to change the situation. Um, and yeah, particularly if you've got coworkers who are not, you know, cis presenting white people in particular. So um, we're going to take a quick break to hear a little bit about some of the offerings that Canine Conservationist has for continuing education. And then we're going to come right back and continue talking about barriers to field work for Black and Indigenous people of color. Are you ready to learn more about training and handling conservation detection dogs? I'm Heather, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationist. Starting in January 2024, I'll be leading a live session of our online conservation dog handler course with the help of Kayla and Rachel. The course includes 18 sections of material covering topics like dog selection, alert training, sensitivity and specificity, odor dynamics, field safety, finding work, and more. Students in the live session will also have weekly Zoom meetings to discuss the learning and go over homework. All students gain lifetime access to the course material in our online community of learners through WhatsApp and Facebook. For those looking to earn CEUs, the course is approved by CPDT, IAABC, and KPA. We can't wait to join you on your journey. Sign up for the waitlist today, linked in the show notes. All right, we are back. So now um, I actually screenshotted the entirety of figure two from your paper because I think it was really helpful. And we'll put that in the show notes along with the link to this entire paper. But what are some of the specific barriers to field work for Black and Indigenous peoples of, people of color? Yeah, so um, there, I'm going to, I guess I'll start with this. Um, these are some of the barriers. These aren't all the barriers, um, but some of the ones that I gain, um, I guess the most, I'm not going to say most problematic, the, some of the things that I feel are problematic and the ones that I haven't, um, been influenced by, um, in my life are, um, are these individual ones that, um, I have put in my paper. Um, so, um, to go through, um, the first one is, uh, systemic racism. Um, second one is microaggression. Third is implicit bias. Um, and then the next one is lack of situation awareness. Um, third is lack of financial support. Um, the next one is lack of opportunities, um, burnout, then gaslighting, the silver sneaker pass and traditions. And I'll just go through a couple of these. Um, so I guess one that I, um, that I kind of feel like is one of the most important to bring up is systemic racism. Um, and that um, is basically the system that's in place now is one that um, has been, that was built and has continued to not only profit off of um, black and, and people of color, but also it has been something that has um, that was built to kind of keep us down. And as one mm -hmm. instance of that is black individuals, we make up between 12 and 15 percent of the general population, but we account for over 35 percent of the people that are um, in prison um, in, in the United States. And that's due to many of the laws and rules that um, were in place or that are still in place and how that how they are enforced or carried out and um, due to many different reasons that some are, are definitely uh, racial profiling. Um, another one that I um, feel um, is a good one is fine. It's lack of financial support. We kind of talked mm -hmm. about it a little bit, but uh, it's a huge problem being underpaid and overwork. And uh, a lot of times, especially someone who's new into getting new into this field or even um, in college, uh, whether it be undergrad or grad school, we don't, we don't have the um, financial support to care this or to mm -hmm. what Bitcoin is waiting on the reimbursements from universities. And it's funny, like, 
Um, we, we, the grad students, get the grant money. We spend our our time writing uh, writing these grants, looking um, for the grants, and then the university. Uh, if it's a grant, it's not written directly to you. The university is responsible for the money, and on top of that, they get to keep the equipment um, that you um, have gotten, have that you were have purchased from the money mm-hmm. that from the grant you received. Um, it's just a huge um, struggle. So now you either um, get these grants, and hopefully your university pays you back right away or many times what happens is you um, get the grant saying you use your credit card or your funds to pay for it and then finally months hopefully months later sometimes it's more than a couple months later your university will finally uh, reimburse you or or if they'll reimburse you or sometimes they'll make you jump through more hoops like oh you didn't you didn't send in this receipt correctly or oh it was was only could be used for this um and the purchase you made didn't qualify for it or um they'll say you have to wait till it's a holiday break so you have to wait until we come back in in january um and sometimes it's hard to get your your university finances people on the phone um, but it's like that. It's a huge burden um, to be able to conduct um, field work um, yeah. due to a lot of these uh, reimbursements. I, I don't know. For me, I feel like if you're getting a grant, um, the money should be going directly. You shouldn't have to go funnel through the university, and then especially like the equipment. Uh, like it should yeah. be your equipment since you worked the hardest <laughs> to right. find those grants. But no, it, it, most of the time it's. Once you're done, you have to leave that university. And what does it do? It usually sit there collecting dust, um, not being used, but just because it's now university property since the money um, came from them, even though it was your grant who funded the project. Right. Um, And then some other ones, um, I kind of put these two together. Um, Traditions, always having to... I've been something been done the same way always. Mm-hmm. Um, like we always we always conduct field work on Thursdays, or um, we we always um, only take one truck in, into the field. Um, but for safety reasons, it might be best to take two. Or uh, this one, like yeah. it's the silver sneaker pass, and basically that's um, is. Someone who has had a long history with the organization or agencies, um, they usually get a pass because because of their seniority or because of their history with the organization. So they make an inappropriate comment um, or do an inappropriate behavior. Um, since they've been there for a long time, they may just get a slap on the, on the wrist or starting talking to instead of uh, being fired or let go. Mm-hmm. Uh, when someone who's new to the organization or a person who may maybe uh, a BIPOC individual um, makes a, a comment and they are immediately let go, uh, which obviously should be the case if you're creating a hostile environment or um, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be let go, but people who are, have history with the company um, gets that that pass, that silver sneaker pass, or um, that also is the case sometimes if they're an older individual, um, mm-hmm. they get a get a pass for like oh they're old, or like they grew up in a different time a different time frame where things like that was okay to say, or they don't understand the the way the world is now. Like no like. If they can learn to use a, an iPhone, use technology, they can yeah. learn to change their behavior. Um, they shouldn't get the, those um, passes. And those, um, they can be barriers to individuals who wants to work in an office where you know um, you're going to have to listen to inappropriate language, those locker room talk comments, uh, who wants to be in those office. So that definitely can be a barrier to someone wanting to get into the field or stay in the field. Um, you only can um, listen to that and be around those so much before you, you want to leave. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so many of these, yeah, these particular risks are 
so stressful for anyone across the spectrum, but then adding on top of that, you know, all of these, you know, the systemic racism and just how much worse all of these things um, are for black indigenous people of color trying to enter these fields um, and really being aware of, you know, who are you protecting when you're trying to make this like silver sneaker argument or something like that and, and why. Um, so what, uh, what specific tips um, would you suggest to people if they, um, to get the care that they need after field work? Yes. Yeah, so, um, the first one is definitely advocating for yourself. Um, you know, your body, you know, um, what your pain tolerance is, you yes, you know, what something hurts, um, what hurts, go ahead and advocate for yourself. Um, and, um, the, another one is carry around like um, documentation to say, mm-hmm. like, especially if you're working um, in the field um, in natural areas, carry documentations that say you're you working outside um, environments where you may be exposed to different um, illnesses like tick-borne illnesses, mosquitoes, mm-hmm. um, and even um, different plants and rashes um, that carry those to let. Um, Healthcare um, personnel know like this is something that you can be exposed you can be exposed to, um, mm-hmm. and it kind of will not only advocate for itself but also could um, help you get the care that you need a lot faster, uh, especially when it comes to wildlife uh, wildlife or um, tick related illnesses. Yeah, and those are a big one. And like. Um, also knowing like the way that different rashes and bug bites present on yourself um so a uh, bug bite on on me um and may present a little different than what's a lot of times in the mm-hmm. um like first aid um pamphlets or um even some of the books um that university used to train doctors um and medical um personnel um, those bikes um, definitely present themselves different on people who have um, more um, tan or melanated skin than people who mm-hmm. have less melanin in their skin. Um, a red rash doesn't look as red on, on brown skin as it does white skin. Right. Uh, so definitely knowing those, um, knowing what your skin looks like when you are exposed to these irritations. Um, and again, knowing what bug bites um, look like on you and um, always advocating for yourself. If one doctor says it says something that you don't like or you don't gr- agree with, you know, go and get a second opinion, a, a third opinion. Um, and definitely um, don't let them talk down to you. Um, and another one is um, like, again, going back to your, your pain tolerance. Um, Sadly, there is uh, definitely a, a misconception, um, one that some that black people have a higher pain tolerance as um, um, as other individuals, uh, which um, is, is not true. And then uh, another one is that like people of color, uh, we um, have a more uh, increased chance of abusing um, pain pills. Um, Mm-hmm. So definitely advocating um, for yourself and those. So, uh, some doctors um, try to avoid giving it to them, especially if they see you're see you're uh, a person of color, individuals, individual. So if you yeah. feel like it and know you're in pain, definitely advocate um, for yourself and seek and seek that out. And sometimes advocation is not. It may not be coming from you, but seek out other and in, in other individuals who can help advocate for yourselves, especially when it comes to these uh, wildlife-related illnesses yeah. and um, pathogens. Yeah, definitely. No, I loved the idea of the cards um, that you had. You know, I feel like there are times where I've done something like that for my dogs. You know, when I'm going in, my 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 dog had a, a case of a tick-borne illness that caused some paralysis. And, you know, talking to the vets, it felt like I wished that I had a list of like, here's all the places we've been. Here's all the things he's been exposed to. Like, this is probably not the most straightforward possible case that you're going to be seeing right now. And like... 
I think for people in my field, at least, it's easier for us to be that proactive about our dogs because we know that they can't explain things. But I love the idea of doing that for ourselves. And, you know, that just seems like good best practice for everyone. I, yeah, especially for, you know, things like rabies exposure, you know, toxo, you know, tick-borne illnesses. There are so many weird things that we get exposed to in this line of work that I can see doctors uh, choosing to believe that you're a hypochondriac or you've been spending too much time on WebMD rather than understanding that, no, you actually are a field biologist and you actually right. could be exposed to these things. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that um, is it's overlooked um, when it comes to um, conservation workers. Um, like, not only are we smart, but we we know like what what's going on, and uh, we are we can um, try to advocate for ourselves. And I mean, doctors um, definitely try to overlook it or don't take you as, ser- as serious if you don't. Sadly, if you don't have documentation that says like these are the areas you've been to, or yes, like look, <laughs> I I am a biologist. Like here's, here's yeah. like here's my work ID. Like this, <laughs> yeah, this isn't something I'm making up. Like. No, like yeah. I, I see the rash and I know what uh, a tick bite look like. Yeah. So it's, yeah. 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 Got it. Yeah. That's, I mean, m- medical gaslighting just feels like a, a particular just brand of misery um, to have to go through. Um, okay. So then next going through the paper, there was um, 10 tips for what, PIs, so principal investigators, can do to support their um, their black field workers. Um, what uh, do we want to pull out? Just a couple of those, maybe, to go through, or we can read out all of them and then do the same thing where we explore a couple more in depth. Yes, yeah, so yes. Yeah, so let's read out all of them and then I'll pick a yeah. couple to go through. Okay, so um, the first one is respect boundaries. The next one is be for them, be there for them, and believe in them. The third is provide proper safety gear. The fourth is provide proper documentation. The fifth is issue organization identifying equipment and gear. The sixth is be honest. Number seven, be sure that you actually know the town that they'll be uh, working in um, and be a part of that town. And then the mm-hmm. eighth is don't downplay um, any racialized experiences of black um, individuals and then support inclusion and diversity in your office and 10 show representation. So a couple that um, I would like to go through um, definitely um, provide, I'll combine these two together provide proper documentation and issue uh, organization equipment and gear. Um, so this can definitely be a game changer and maybe even a lifesaver is providing documentation with your organization's name and logo on it um, that say that um, that this individual does belong to your organization and they are conducting research um, for the organization, and then also providing that uh, that organization, like identifying gear and equipment, um, give them shirts with your logo on it, give them magnets that they can either stick on their car mm-hmm. or furnish, um, uh, or like um, organization like vehicles, and um, this like can help like if you have those equipment and documentation especially as a person of color it's not really um and like if you encounter police or uh, a nosy neighbor it's the when you are um especially yeah. dealing with the police um there's a higher chance you're gonna have the police called on you for being an area um so Make sure that make sure that they have those or those organization um, identifying documents and gear. So when the police do come up to them, um, they can already say, "Here's my research permit. Here's 
um, information of what I'm doing. Um, I am wearing company issue clothes, mm-hmm. um, and there's a higher chance of easily de- um, de-escalating the um, situation before um, it even starts, um, and then it also um, can make things a little bit safer for you and it will make if it was a person who called on you look they don't kind of look crazy like dude they're just out here conducting research like why yeah, are you saying they're looking suspicious yeah, yeah. yeah um, so definitely yeah. those yeah and then, definitely yeah yeah then um i guess two more um is mm-hmm. um is number six and seven be honest and number seven is uh, be sure that you actually know the town that um, they'll be working. So when an individual um, from a different background that you're on um, that from you would come to you, especially a BIPOC individual, um, when they're a show and express interest in joining your lab in your company, your organization, go ahead and like be honest and explain the culture of the organization in the town that um, they'll be working in or living in and alert them to any problems that have occurred in that area. Because um, many times, like, especially um, undergrad students and grad students, we're moving from an area that we're familiar with, coming into um, a new area uh, via the university, and we don't know the area, but you have lived there for um, years. You know the area. You know what's going on. You know if it's safe um, to go three miles outside of the university versus 10 and 20 miles. You know what they're going to yeah. encounter. Um, so go ahead and be honest with them. If you know that um, there's going to be a, a high chance that they um, encounter racisms or there's a Sons of Confederacy uh, memorial and flag right outside the highway uh, while you're leaving the university. Um, go ahead and be, let them know that there's a chance that they're going to see that. And people who believe in um, try to uphold those um, values um, of that um, flag and that culture. Um, and then also try to get to know any um any parts of the town that they'll be conducting research in, um, go to some of the restaurants. Um, if they're going to be having to camp at um, camp or stay in local hotels, uh, check out those hotels. Make sure that uh, there's a chance that they're not going uh, to encounter any racial or homophobic um, ideas or, or people. Um, um, but go make sure that area um, is safe and welcoming for them. There's, I'm not going to say there's no chance that um, those things could happen, but by you being there, there's probably a lesser chance of them, um, those things happening. Um, yeah, and your due diligence. You know, right, like yes. A, a try. Yes, and that's a big deal. Like, it doesn't it doesn't hurt anything to, to try. If you go there and you don't see anything, like good, but at least definitely do your due diligence and, and mm-hmm. try make an effort instead of sending them to an area that's blind. Um, and then the same thing, like number eight goes along in um, six to seven as well is don't downplay any racialized experiences um, or even like in the same, along the same lines that is not um, like covering up for someone who has been racist by saying, oh, they didn't mean like that, or trying to give them that silver sneaker pass. Um, They've been here for so long, they never said anything. Well, maybe they never said anything because this is the first individuals that they have encountered that has been different um, than them, or this is first individual that they feel like would be intimidated by them so they can say it and not expect any recourse. Right. Or maybe they've been saying it all along, but you just didn't think twice about it um, until someone actually called every, called it out. out. Um, yeah. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. You covered all the ones that I had picked out that I was like, oh, I'd like to dive into those more. So um, thank you for <laughs> thank you for reading my mind. Um, <laughs> so I think the last uh, thing that I wanted to close on, because I really I had not heard this metaphor before. And like you, I really like food metaphors and 
um, cookies are also my favorite food group. Um, so can you tell us um, that little metaphor at the end of diversity versus inclusion as far as how cookies go? Yes, yes. So the diversity cookie metaphor. So um, when we look at cookies or look at diversity and inclusion, we're, diversity is a one of those soft um, frosted cookies with sprinkles on there, sprinkles of a lot of different colors. Um, very good, but it shows how diverse you are. But the bad thing is with those cookies, you can shake them and rub them off and pretty much mm-hmm. is going to gonna lose all the sprinkles. You're going to lose that diversity um, that is there that is just sitting on top of the organization um, or the cookie. But with um, inclusion, it's a chocolate chip cookie with chocolate chips, like the chocolate the chips are actually like mixed in, then they're baked in and they become a part of the organization. Um, like inclusion, like inclusion, it's mm-hmm. fully like ingrained and mixed into the organization. And in order to take the inclusion out um, or the chocolate chip out, you have to like destroy the cookie and pluck it out. But even once you pluck the chocolate chip out, there's still going to be leftover chocolate chip, there's going to be evidence of the chocolate, the inclusion that's left in your organization. So you're going to, even though you're trying to take it out, you're still going to have to dismantle your organization and yet you will still have leftover inclusion in your organization um, from the from the inclusion, from the chocolate chip while trying to take out the inclusion in your pretty much destroy your organization um, and there's still going to be evidence of it left whereas with the diversity it's something that can be easily changed um, you can just wipe those off uh, maybe you need to hire a couple of people to meet a quota um, for your diversity statement to get those photo ops so you hire them and then after a couple months like all right um we can go back to normal, so you find a way to get rid of them. But with inclusion, um, that that's going to be a whole lot harder to do. And then even if you succeed and get rid of those people, um, their mark, their experience, and um, it's going to be left in your organization um, to uh, rub off on other individuals. Yeah, definitely. I love I love that metaphor, and it's yeah, it's. Like just the idea of diversity being sprinkles that you can take off is very evocative. And I think we've all kind of seen examples of that. And I know, you know, I've got friends who have been that token hire or felt that they were that token hire. And it is so damaging and frustrating to be told that you are being brought in to help diversify and move towards these lofty goals. And then as soon as you actually start calling out behaviors or actions or policies or language that is harmful, you know, which is what they've asked you to do, then you start getting sanctioned or silenced or put on probation or fired. Um, I, I just, I, I feel like I've seen that with so many people. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a real bummer of a pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely unfortunate. And a lot of times, like you said, uh, as soon as you start shaking, shaking the ground is is when they um, decide that you're doing your job a little too well, yeah. and, and want want to get rid of you, or if they can't get rid of you, put you in other areas where you um, you can't make as much wake. So they give it a little picture of no wake zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, then, you know, on the flip side, I would imagine, um, you know, one of the things that I've struggled with as we we're kind of working on this, this series is trying to find people like you who are writing papers on this sort of thing and are really kind of putting yourself out there as someone who's willing to talk about this. Because the last thing I would want to do, and I think this happens a lot on organizational levels, is like, oh, we've got one black person in the applic- in the applicant pool. Great, let's hire them. And then they can be our DEI educator. And like, that's, you know, if you're a conservation biologist or a dog handler or, you know, whatever, that you're not inherently a DEI educator. And um, it's, 
you know, it, it it just seems like people get screwed either way. Like either they're right. asked to do it, and then when they do it, people get upset at them, or they're asked to do it and they don't want to because that's not actually you know that's not what they're here to do, and that's not right. their expertise. Exactly, and yeah, it's it's almost as if you're you're doing a double duty. Like you hire me to be a biologist, but also you want me. Uh, to be the lead of the DI working group, yeah. and people like a lot of people don't understand that it's like that is a job in itself. Like, totally. um, sharing your live experience um, and your personal um, like life and story is it's so much more. It's not something like just like oh, where are you from? But you actually. And many times when you are sharing your story or trying to um, do DI initiatives, a lot of times it's like you have to relive those experiences on what happened to you. And it's not something um, that you can do so lightly. Um, So it definitely takes a lot of effort and a lot of individual companies, they don't um, realize that um, when they are asking you to um, be a DI um, spokesperson, like if if you're gonna hire someone to be a DI spokesperson, you need to go ahead and let them know that before you hire them as a biologist and say, oh, we're also gonna throw them tests on you because it's it's a a whole nother workload. And second, yeah. like companies need to be willing to pay for um, people <laughs> yeah. to do DI work. So yeah, it's it's a lot. Yeah. Like you said, it's definitely. It's a ton of emotional labor, and it's not yeah. a skill set that is universal. Like, yeah, I've been, mm-hmm. and this is, yeah, I've been in situations where, yeah, I'm feeling like because of my background or whatever, I'm supposed to or feel compelled to speak up. And if that's not something you're really well trained for, it's really stressful, and it's easy to trip over yourself, and then. You know, and then you end up getting dismissed because you get emotional or, you know, whatever. And it's just, it's it's such a messy situation to throw people into. And I'm so glad you said that also, yeah, people should be getting paid if they're expected to also be your DEI person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, okay, Al, I would actually love to close out with a little bit of just what are you working on research-wise in the conservation biology world right now? I'd love to just talk conservation for a couple minutes. Yeah, so right now I'm actually working a um, freshwater policy um, fellowship uh, with the Fish and Wildlife Service. So uh-huh. um, hopefully I'll have a policy uh, with my name somewhere in, in there, somewhere down the list coming out in the next couple of months. Um, that um, mainly um, that's what I'm working on is um, as a fellow working with the freshwater um the Fish and Aquatic Conservation Division of the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh-huh. creating good trouble and trying to uh, make sure that the um, Fish and Wildlife Service is becoming more diverse and um, upholding um, the values that it has in place um, mm-hmm. to be a more diversified place. So um, it's definitely shaking <laughs> shaking the waters. Um, well, they'll probably hear this anyways, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, trying to shake the waters and um but um i i am in the process of um revamping a um, pocket field guide series for kids and new um new people to nature um called critters Mm -hmm. um which is encouraging people um to get outdoor and see the nature um that is around them so i have two books that are already out for Michigan, Minnesota, and coming this fall, Georgia and Florida um, will be out. And I'm really looking forward to them being out because obviously I'm from Georgia, and um, but it, it's definitely something that's encouraging um, to see coming out. And I hope it's an encouragement to not only like. Um, Black and brown kids um, being able to see a uh, black scientist on the field guide, um, but also um, um, kids who come from a lower economic status as myself or who are mm-hmm. neurodivergent and also um, have learning disabilities 
um, as well as that. Um, it's, it may take a lot of work, but you too can um, accomplish some of the things that's going on. So um, th those are some of the things that I'm working for and just make sure that nature is for ev everyone and we all have a equal opportunity to um, utilize it. Yeah, definitely. No, I'm really excited about these little field guides. They look, they look great. They look like the sort of thing I would have eaten up as a kid. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's cool to just continue seeing more and more of this representation and inclusion actually happening in the conservation world. Um, you know, I've been talking a little bit with Dr. Raywin Grant. We did some research with her and, you know, he, seeing her coming out for Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I, like, that was a show that got me so excited about ecology and conservation when I was a little kid. And imagining, um, you know, a woman on it and a Black woman at that is just like, uh, that would have blown my mind as a little kid. Um and yeah, really, really excited to see that because I had parents who are conser my dad's a conservation biologist. So he got me books like Girls Who Looked Under Rocks to like show me all of the female conservation biologists out there. But to my knowledge, there's not a book like that um, for people of color yet that's geared towards little kids. So maybe that's one of your next projects. Um, yes, I'm, so, I'm yeah. on I, it changed my life, you know? Yes, yes, so. definitely. Yeah, I'm definitely excited about um, um, Ray's show coming coming out, the revamp. Like, I, I was into it as well. Like, that yeah. definitely helped me to want to be a wildlife biologist um, as well. So I'm excited about that. And there's there is one. It's for older individuals, a um, book about um, black women in science. Um, I can't think of the name right now, but I may have I'll to look it up it for a quick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just type that into my search bar so I can find it later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we'll definitely link that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, again, if you ever need more projects, it sounds like you've got uh, 47 states to go for critters. So you've probably got plenty on your plate. <laughs> but um, well, Al, is there anything else that you wanted to um, bring up or circle back to or expand on um, that we didn't give enough time to before we wrap, wrap up here? Um, yeah, I guess um, we can quickly talk about uh, the conservation um, table. Yeah, so the conservation table that we have now is a table that it's a tainted table. So it's a table that has been built um, on the like oppression and blood of um, BIPOC individuals um, that is now has been so so clean. Um, and it's a table that we are all welcome at, but it, the table is still dirty. It just has a tablecloth over it. Um, but we need to definitely move away. I'm not even going to say move away from that table. We need to destroy that table and get rid of it and create a new table where we all can contribute to um, equally without it still being this is our table, um, so to speak, as the old conservation table where you can submit ideas and information too, but it's this is our work instead of like the whole aspect of our work. I mean, it's kind of confusing, but this is a work that we all have done instead of work that one group of people have done and is presenting as work for themselves when mo a lot of people has contributed to it. But we need a table that is contributed to it equally, one that is no longer um, one that has been serving um, a image of conservation that excludes a lot of um, different ideals that um, could have better help conservation. So one that actually acknowledges local and indigenous ecological knowledge um, and use it as a truly conservation science instead of um, Western science as the old the all and be all um, solar way of science. Yeah, definitely. I'm yeah, I'm glad we ended that there. Cause actually, yeah, that was a question that um I ended up 
uh, dropping over onto the next page. But I was my last question was supposed to be, how is conservation a tainted concept? So thank you again for reading my mind and saving the notes. Um, yeah, which is something I think it's been, we've been kind of circling around it and touching on it a lot in recent episodes for the show. And it's something that like I'm still learning about. And it's one of those things that it's uh, it's harder for me to look at and like learn the the like colonialist and racist history with conservation than it is with other things because it's my career and it's something I love so it hurts to learn all of the ugly history around it um, and and present as well um, but I think that's also why it's so important so thank you for remembering to um, to bring that up for for us even though I forgot. Yeah, no problem. Um, it's definitely something that, uh, it's definitely a hurtful past, but it's something that we, um, definitely needs to talk about. Um, we can mm-hmm. only sweep so much stuff up under the rug before you trip over it. And I think right now America is at a point of tripping over a, a lot of the stuff that we have up under the rug and, um, the conservation table um, is is one of those things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so I did find um, there's a Black Women in Science book um, that we'll link in the show notes. I'm not seeing anything that's um, conservation specific yet. Um, but um, we'll link some of those uh, potential readings in the show notes, definitely, as this episode will probably be coming out in, like, mid to late October. So people may or may not be starting to think about um, things to get their nieces and nephews uh, and kids for the holidays. Um, so, Al, where can people find you on the Internet if they're interested in keeping up with all of the work that you do and uh, um, seeing more of those Critters books coming out, especially? Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at NatureAl. And then um, my website is being revamped, but right now it, I'm pretty sure it's Alex Trotman is NatureAl.com. And then uh, you can purchase the Critters books um, through Adventure King, but they also can be found on. Amazon, Target, and um, Barnes and Noble as well. Excellent. Yeah, and we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes as always. So for everyone at home or in the car or on a hike, hopefully with earbuds in if you're hiking, um, we uh, we hope that you, this episode um, you learned a lot and you feel inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in a way that suits your passions and your skill set. As we said, you can find the show notes with all of those links. You can sign up for a course, our Patreon. You can buy a bento box if you need um, with our dog's faces on it. All of that is at uh, canineconservationists.org. We'll be back next week. Bye.